on oil and gas prices in general. The oil price continues to be backwardated. The gas price continues to be backwardated. The oil price is lower. The price of gasoline, which you've seen lots of publicity, is lower. It's interesting, the, because of Europe trying to find backup for Russian gas, Dipolis and diesel is quite high relative to gasoline as compared to crude. It's called the crack spread. In other words, the, the value of a, of a barrel of diesel versus a barrel of oil is like $40, $50, which is unusually high, where the, the value of a barrel of gasoline versus crude is about $15, which is on the low side. What is happening by the administration in Genesis is that there's such good export demand for dislet, refineries are running flat out. They make gasoline the market doesn't really need. So by the time we get closer to the election, the price of gasoline may be not too much more than it was, you know, a year ago. And that'll probably help the help the Democrats. But they, you know, they they still you had the president out, you know, saying that there was price gouging going on and whatnot. These people are truly uninformed or worse. I think a fair way to look at oil going forward is Japan, and we talked about this last week, can depend enormously on China. I mean, we will have a recession here. My goodness. I mean, we had no, we had a decline in real GMP in the first quarter, a decline of real GMP, you know, 1%, 1.5% one in the second quarter. So Two quarters of real GMP decline constitute a recession. On the other hand, you know, the unemployment rate's only three and a half percent. You, the economists, are not going to call the recession with such a low unemployment rate. So now we're about to finish the third quarter. Chances are that there'll be a slight decline in real GMP. Still, you know, the jobs reports have been pretty good, and <laughs> unemployment rate is still pretty low. Eventually, will a panel of economists call recession? I don't know. It's not very serious and certain, you know, very, very good labor market conditions for people who want to work or want to look for work. There are, in terms of spots open, people keep track of this. There are two spots open for every person who figures under the government statistics is unemployed. I mean, labor is still very, very tight. Different situation in China. I mean, we're the world's largest economy. We're actually doing okay. In China, they're not doing okay. I mean, they're going to have the first time for a long, long time, for decades, they probably will have a decline in real GMP this year. Combination of really serious problems in their real estate area, which is a much higher portion of their GMP than ours. And it's where they normally go and try to support the economy, but they just have too much debt, internal debt, external debt. Developers who are not finishing apartments. People who agreed to buy the apartments on kind of a stolen basis who aren't sending in their installments. It's a mess. And Mike and I were talking this morning, you know, it's conceivable that the Communist Party, which controls things, they're about to have their party Congress to reelect the President Xi for another term, which is absolutely against president, normally two terms and someone else takes, takes over. But maybe the communist parties decide this is their way of maintaining control. I mean, if 
go all the way back to when Alibaba wanted to take Ant public, it was going to be huge, but you know, biggest IPO ever in the Hong Kong market. And they stopped that. Maybe that this is their way of kind of controlling things. Maybe they don't want real GNP growth. That would be horrible news for commodity markets, including oil and gas, but you know, it's conceivable, I suppose. Before you go back a few years, they China wanted to grow five or six percent real per year because they had to create enough jobs because you were bringing all these people out of rural communities and getting them jobs and keeping, you know, everyone happy with their government and their state life depended on creating more jobs. Maybe now they think the private economy is strong enough and they just assume maintain just total control. That would not be good for commodities. Also, we're going to talk about chip stocks in a bit. Wouldn't be good for anything technology. I mean, uh, you know, just an awful lot of whether it's chips or chip making equipment or whatnot goes into China. So something to watch. Another thing to watch is, is quantitative tightening or QT. Quantitative easing is when the Fed goes out and buys government bonds, mortgage bonds, or whatnot, which creates more money and, and the Fed balance sheet. To combat COVID, uh, the Fed balance sheet was $4 trillion before in about a $22 trillion economy, about $4 trillion before COVID. They ran it all the way up to nine. Think of it. During COVID, we overspent by $7 trillion, $5 trillion overspending because that meant we had to borrow $7 trillion. $5 trillion, we didn't have to borrow because the Fed balance sheet went up. Now, the Fed balance sheet for the first, well, think of it this way. The Fed thought inflation was transitory. Wrong. They really got that wrong. And then they thought that it, it was manageable. Now, they realize it's not manageable. I mean, you've had consumer price index increased by 8%. Now, they're totally spooked and they head in the other direction. They're determined to have the Fed funds rate, which is what they administer, be more than the rate of inflation. Well, their rate of inflation is is a statistic they call called PCB, personal consumption, something or other, which is not as high as the consumer price index. It's like 5% on the consumer price index. It's like two points less. The consumer price index is 7%. The index they watch is 5%. It means they have to get the Fed funds rate not up to 4%, but up to 5%, unless that PCB is headed down, which, which it may be. We'll see each month. They know that they will be, if they start to withdraw this money out of the U.S. capital markets, all hell's going to break loose, which it is breaking loose. I mean, the, the pound is down to almost parity, the, the euro dollar is down to 96 or 97 cents, the cracks opening up all over. Uh, a bunch of banks, U.S. banks, participated in LBO in January. They had 30, 30 billion of debt. They're just selling the debt for 83 cents on the dollar, which means it's kind of a bloodbath for them. You know, they make two points if it goes well, and they, they lose 17 points when it doesn't. So there's all kinds of capital market problems out there. Huge drawdown. I mean, we're, our equity markets are now back to where they were in June. And, you know, may, may, you know, having a good day today, kind of a bounce back, but may be lower by the end of the year. What now this, you know, the interest rate is one thing, and, and certainly it's moved mortgage rates by 3% to 7%. So it's certainly going to have an impact on the, the housing sector of our economy. The Fed kind of pussyfooted around. I mean, they were still adding the balance sheet in February. So when they started down 
Rodlin put in runoff, which would be 90 billion a month or about a trillion a year. They started the first three months at 30. Now, September is the first month they're doing 90. They really need to stick with this. They need to take that extra liquidity out of our system. But what's likely to happen is, is already happening. It's cracks, you know, very strong. You know, U.S. dollars up 20%. Other currencies are faring poorly. Imagine if you're, if you're, if you're, got a business in the UK and you're earning pounds, you're selling things for pounds and you've got US dollar liabilities, you know, it's a terrible position to be in. So <clears throat> this is creating all kinds of stresses. With the stresses, will the Fed reverse course? I don't think so. They've all just been reappointed. And one of the reasons I, I hold the Fed's delay entirely as caused by the Biden administration not reappointing Powell and the other members. I, I don't know why they did that. I think it was stupid and they're suffering the consequences. If, if they lose the midterm elections because of inflation, you know, it was, it, it was, a, it was a mistake. It was just a, a political mistake as well as being an economic mistake. In terms of how oil's going to fare here, probably okay. You know, the demand will be lower or flatten out. Supply though is still you know, headed down. The OPEC countries, most of them can't make their quota. Uh, you have the uncertainty of Russian oil. Looks even more uncertain with the news, the energy news. I don't know whether you saw a picture in the time of this big gas bubble in the Baltic. Apparently there was sabotage on a couple of the North Stream 1 and North Stream 2 lines. They're at the bottom of the, of the Baltic Sea, very deep, encased in concrete. But somehow, I don't know whether it was a Russian submarine or someone, created three leaks. Each leak turns into about a mile circumference bubbling at the surface. So, you know, you have to fix those leaks in order to, you know, have the gas lines work. Another bit of potential uh, disruption maybe caused by Russia are drones circling around over offshore platforms, offshore Norway. Very alarming. You've seen the impact that drones can have in, in Ukraine. It's like you don't need pilots anymore. I mean, if you want to, you know, shoot at tanks or other things on the ground, artillery, better to do it with drones rather than and aircraft. So clearly there's the technology out there for these drones to raise havoc in offshore oil fields. Now, natural gas has gone into a swoon. What was eight or nine dollars is now, you know, six dollars. Now that the price after three years hasn't changed. But Antero, which is something we helped start and own a lot of, you know, was $40 stock now, it's $29 stock. Southwestern, which we owned a lot of, it's $8 stock now, it's a $6 stock. So what has happened with LNG, uh, with Europe facing the winter without Russian gas, uh, LNG was at $100. Now it's back down to around $37, $38. Things seem to be being managed. So... You know, whether it's Europe or ourselves or China or whatnot, people are kind of getting through, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it, there, there isn't reason for alarm. Now, what is there a reason for? I think this is a time where if you've established a cash position, you want to hold on to both of them. You find something you like, like in the video, which we talked last week or AMD this week or SML, one of the, you know, if you want to own those companies, you can start to nibble. You know, it, it may go down, but if it goes down, you can buy more. If you have a position that you have that you're not that comfortable with, or you think is too high, you can sell that and, and look, 
it's always a good idea to accumulate companies that you like. Since we start going through, when I persuaded Mike and Jason myself that we ought to do 50 companies, you know, that was one a week. I thought, oh my goodness, how are we ever going to find 50 companies? Now, Mike, Jason, and I, we're going to have more than 50 companies. I mean, we, we have, we have every week from now till probably next spring kind of laid out almost, and they're going to be related companies. And remember, we did software first. And, you know, I think the best company to come out of that, I mean, maybe Microsoft, but they're pretty mature was Snowflake. Snowflake actually had a bounce. They had pretty good interim results. And you got to watch Snowflake and try to get it at 120 or 130. We did the ship equipment companies. I think the best company of, of those were the ones I like the best. I mean, uh, Mike and Jason like Lamb. I like ASML, the Dutch company. But once again, you know, you, you may see it at lower pricing. NVIDIA, which, you know, is a company that's just done marvelous things. You know, we talked about last week. This week, we're going to talk about advanced microvices, AMD. And turn it over to Mike and Jason now. I've already used up enough of our 30 minutes. But as I look at AMD from the numbers as compared to NVIDIA, I I, I don't see, you know, I, I, I would own each of them. I, I don't own either of my own through my partnership, but I don't e own either of them. But, but uh, when I mentioned that to Mike over the phone, I'm sure Jason will back them up. They still prefer NVIDIA. So with that as a lead in, going to turn the rest of the 30 minutes over to Mike and Jason to lead you through AMD versus NVIDIA and chips in general. By the way, next week, because it's a lagger and it's still having trouble getting out of its own way, next week we're going to talk about Intel. But this week is AMD. So over to Mike and Jason. Okay, so game plan for today. Let's talk a little bit about the history of AMD. We'll talk about GPUs because that's how it kind of relates to two weeks ago, our conversation about NVIDIA. And then we'll talk about CPUs. Then we'll talk about kind of the more recent developments with the company and finally cover some valuation. And and we're make sure Jason gets plenty of speaking opportunities here. Oh. So putting you on the spot. Now after last week you're you're roped in. <laughs> okay. So so Andy was founded by uh, Jerry Sanders and some of his colleagues from Fairchild Semiconductor, sort of a legend from the early Silicon days. AMD became a second source supplier of some Fairchild design chips. And back, back then, it was very common to have second source supplier setups because nobody was really that good at manufacturing. And, and ultimately, this kind of is embedded in AMD's history. So as they developed, they developed some of their own chips and they became second source suppliers for a bunch of chips. And when Intel introduced the first x86 microprocessors in 78, IBM wanted to use them in their PC, but as a precondition for using those x86 processors, they wanted Intel to provide a second source manufacturer for those processors. And as a result, and it kind of because AMD had already reverse engineered in previous years, some of, some of Intel's chips. As a result, AMD got chosen to be this second source supplier. Started with a 10-year technology exchange agreement, and obviously it continues to this day. I think they, Mike, Mike and Jason, they almost died a couple of times, right? Yeah, well, all these semiconductor companies seem to, especially in the early days, you remember, and we'll get to this, most of them manufactured their own stuff. 
So you'd have many, many manufacturers, many second suppliers. And as a result, you had what we like to refer to as ruinous competition. When you have a lot of people producing the same thing and no incentive to curtail production, what you end up with is, I guess, a tragedy of the commons where all profits get wiped out and prices go down to marginal cost. Over the years, the, this x86 business ended up being pretty good. They got Jim Keller to design some chips back when Jason and I were probably in college. You remember that the AMD chips actually got pretty good. And in 2006, they acquired ATI, which gave them a graphics card, a GPU company. And in 2008, they spun off their fab, Global Foundries. And that was probably the most pivotal moment for AMD as business. Once they spun off the fab, they could solely focus on being a chip designer. And as you normally do with these spinoffs, you load up the spun off entity with all the debt and you keep all the cash. So it, it put them in a relatively stable position in spite of the fact that they were, I guess at this time on the tail end of those K series, AMD, Athlon chips that had done well, but were starting to lose steam. In 2014, Lisa Sue became the CEO. And I guess this is around when Jim Keller came back to AMD and started designing the, what is now known as the, uh, the Zen series processors. Lisa Sue is either really lucky or a genius because one of, one of the books we really like is called The Outsiders and it covers CEOs that have been CEOs of a company for more than 10 years and compares their returns over time. Lisa Sue in a couple of years will be one of the best returning CEOs of all time, assuming AMD's stock price doesn't plummet from here. So Lisa Sue's story is kind of interesting because her grandfather is actually Jen Sen Huang's uncle. So there's a connection here between two of our most interesting chip design stocks. The other thing I wanted to mention is they acquired Xilinx and they've also now acquired company called Pensando, a DPU provider. Again, not to go too far in the weeds, but these two acquisitions make them more competitive with the data center. So that kind of catches you up to where AMD is today. But why don't we talk a little bit about GPUs? I kind of want to go CPU route. Okay. So they've always kind of played second fiddle to, to Intel following those K-series chips so in the last decade until probably 2018. They were the inferior product and they had, as a result, they, they were the discount laptops. They had a much smaller market share. When Jim Keller did come back and started designing the new Zen architecture chips, uh, they released a, what they called Ryzen. And that was really a better chip than Intel at the, at the time. And, and even still really Intel has been struggling. They struggled to get their 10 nanometer process going and anywhere past that. So AMD capitalized with their better designs along with Intel kind of flailing there. And then they really gained market share and, and overtook Intel, right? And, and what year was that? It's kind of recent. Yeah, in 2019, 2020, mm -hmm. they've really gotten much better. And this all goes back to that decision to spin off the fab and they actually decided to sole source with Taiwan Semiconductor, right. which has given them a really good position today because when they just made that decision, Taiwan Semiconductor wasn't the only one on the leading edge. You had 
plenty of other, well, really you had Samsung at least as another option. And the decision that NVIDIA made was to play Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor off each other, which was great until Samsung fell off the leading edge. And now you have a situation where NVIDIA has to, has made huge prepayments for capacity, which they now have to write off some of that. And AMD is in a better position because of their longer and more committed customer relationship. I have a question for Jason. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at numbers and both of these companies seem to be doing around six or $7 million a quarter of revenue. But I guess you would say that AMD's mix of products is inferior to NVIDIA's because NVIDIA is GPUs rather than processors and higher value. And I'm not sure there's like a lot more distinctions you'd make, but could you just speak about NVIDIA's businesses compared to AMD in terms of trying to stack the two companies up one against the other? Yeah, absolutely. NVIDIA, they, they're a much stronger GPU company and then they have the software, um, moat with CUDA. AMD, their market for GPUs is really the gaming industry and they're, and they're still, you know, kind of the lagger. They're the discount gaming card, if you will. AMD is shining CPUs and they're taking a lot of market share, even in, in data center. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how NVIDIA responds with their like just released CPU, um, that is an arm based CPU. That's interesting. I even believe that NVIDIA was a customer of AMD's when they did these co-packaged system on chips. Mm-hmm. So, so AMD's probably losing NVIDIA as a customer. Uh, they seem to be relatively friendly though. Maybe that goes back to the family relationship. All right. And where did the, where did Keller, the chip designer, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine that one person, I mean, presumably brings people with them. But how is it that one person be so influential in terms of the quality of the product, the result from his being on board or not on board? I don't know, but I, I kind of think of him sort of like Pat Gelsinger in a way. I mean, Gelsinger was a savant and, you know, it was Intel's biggest mistake was not promoting him to the CEO role when they had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Or Steve Jobs of semiconductors. Right. <laughs> yeah. He spearheaded a lot of the most influential chips in the last you know, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Has he always been an AMD person on and off or is he worked? He's a, he's a people worked for Apple for a while. <laughs> that was him. That was him. What, was it the M1 or the A4? Yeah. yeah the, the, the A series chips were his design. That's really, you know, what. Right when Apple took the processing lead there. Which I actually think is amazing because he went from x86 to ARM with, you know, no big deal, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of shows right. the, its expertise. How, does he need a hundred people or, or lots of capability and AI and whatnot? I mean, how does he, how does he do it? I mean, is it, does he sit down at night? figure out how to do it or is he just good at leading the kind of people who, who do it? How, how would you describe, um, his impact on Apple or AMD or, or whatever? So, 
So I think, think about this industry where every little piece requires like PhD level expertise. And in order to put the whole package together, you need to have very solid knowledge of a bunch of different pieces of the puzzle. And for most people, just to become an expert in one area is enough of a challenge, but to get expertise in two, three, four, or five areas is near impossible. But that's where, that's where the real value is created, right? So I, again, this is my, you know, finger in the air guess, but I assume that his level of expertise is broader than most, and he understands the fundamentals of all the specific um, design areas. It also helps that nowadays it's less expensive to start a chip company because all the design software is available. So assuming you understand your requirements, the ability to get a new chip off the ground is actually quite a bit easier. Right. We just got a few minutes left. Do you and Jason want to get into relative value AMD versus NVIDIA? Yeah. Or would, sure. you, would you rather wait and see the next quarter of NVIDIA results before doing the comparison? <laughs> well, I'd, I'd like to see both of the next quarter's results. I'm predicting that at the end of this quarter, AMD is going to guide their previous guidance down significantly. But ignoring that, just looking at what they've done this year, it's about a billion dollars a quarter in free cash flow. So that's 4 billion run rate, 20 times that's 80 billion, 1.6 billion shares outstanding. So you get to about a $50 a share valuation that that is going to be cheaper on an objective basis than NVIDIA. NVIDIA, right. especially current quarter is going to look expensive because their margins took a huge hit because they took a big write down on inventory. It's also that NVIDIA, you're paying extra for that software mode as well. I'll boil this down to a relatively simple analogy since we're running out of time here. I think that, uh, AMD has always followed well. They followed Intel relatively well, and they followed NVIDIA fairly well on design. What NVIDIA has done extremely well is, to use a hockey analogy, they skate to where the puck is going, not where the market is today. So I think that if you look at the latest launch of the NVIDIA GPUs, they have a bunch of stuff in them that is not exactly going to make the margins the best that they could be, but they're going to make NVIDIA's business better in the long run. And that's not something that AMD does. So maybe financially, AMD is going to look a little bit better, but I think technologically, uh, NVIDIA is going to be quite a bit superior. Yeah, I, I would add, they just had a, a big conference, I want to say last week. It's worth watching Jensen's keynote speech where he lays out NVIDIA's future vision of the world and the metaverse, really. So they have a tangible goal of what the metaverse is, even though a lot of people talk about it and have no idea. And we're going to talk about Intel, I guess, next week, just so we are fair and cover everything. But I noticed in the paper, uh, Intel announced some GPU cards, which I guess is the business they abandoned a decade or more ago. And, and one of the things Pat Gelsinger said was, that GPU cards were getting awfully expensive. I think he pointed to a NVIDIA card as $2,000 or something. And so he thought that Intel would have an opening here to do GPU cards that 
weren't, weren't as powerful as Nvidia's, but were much more reasonably priced. I don't want to put words in Jason's head, but I think I could just hear Jason say, Hey, that's exactly what we're talking about, you know, until you're able to match the capability of the GPU card, you're basically in the rear of the parade. Or am I overstating that, Jason? No, that's, that's accurate. And, and, uh, there's a, there's, that software mode has to be overcome as well. Yeah. The, their best case is to compete with AMD in that case. Yeah. Because the NVIDIA crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, thanks for everyone's attention. Uh, and in the meantime, everyone have a good week and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care.